Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Interesting email from someone who said, Carol, I just don't know what to think and I need your help. It's all about my husband and I just don't know what to do. He's attracted same-sex men. And I said to myself, same-sex men? Well, what she had meant was that he was attracted to men. He had a same-sex attraction. And she was really concerned because she did not know what did that mean. Was he gay? Was he bisexual? She really could not get over it. Um, it was the number one thing that she feared the most. She felt like he was effeminate to begin with. Well, she later did send me um, an email that explained that she had seen that he had looked at a lot of male pornography and she just didn't feel safe. You know, she explained that when she found out that her husband had a compulsion. He was looking at a lot of porn. He was cheating on her. And it was mostly with men. It was it was very frightening for her. It was frightening because she really thought she knew the man she was in love with. And here was this whole second side, this this very secretive side of her. Well, on top of that, it's one thing to be cheated on, but when it's a whole different genre, it's a whole different world, it makes it hard to know what you can trust, what you can believe. And that's why she uh, sent me the email. So I know that if you're an addict, and you are listening right now to the show, you know that if people have discovered your addiction, you have probably traumatized them, whether it's your family, your parents, your spouse. Uh, there's trauma that occurs because it was such a secret life. And the best way to handle that is to go to a certified sexual addiction therapist and really look at your own behavior. And then in addition to that, what you really want to do is you want to get honest with yourself 
and you want to get honest with the people that you love. But you have to decide who is safe. Who is safe enough to be honest with? Because the truth of the matter is, there may be people that you don't want to tell. And I know that may seem incongruent with what I just said, but we definitely do want you to feel safe. We don't want somebody who would expose you for everything. Because this is a condition. It's a disorder. It's an illness. And what I know is that absolutely you have every right to your own confidentiality. But I have to tell you that what ends up happening is that if you hold too many secrets, if you, you know, you're allowed to decide when you're going to talk with people about your life. But when you hold too many secrets for too long, it creates that second addiction. And that is so difficult. So get yourself with an expert who can help you feel safe. And then you can decide who do you talk to first. Now, my recommendation is that you need to be involved in a therapy group for sex addicts or a 12-step group, um, any kind of support group that you can talk about your life and, and not really feel judged. And, you know, I talk to a lot of sex addicts who do feel judged. It's not that the people in the group judge them, but being honest for the first time is very, very scary. And so it's important to really process that. I know in our sex addiction therapy groups, we have clearings. When somebody feels judged, and I periodically will ask as a group exercise, does any man have an issue with any other man in the group. And almost invariably, a man will step up and say, John, I have an issue with you. You know, I felt that you did not like uh, my stance on Christianity. You know, you called me Bible something, and that really upset me. Um, you'll find other men that say, Terry, it really bothered me when you rolled your eyes when I talked about the fact that I had looked at some child porn. Now, Terry may go, I didn't roll my eyes. But the truth of the matter is that's what the participant in the group saw, so he needs to check that out. And so oftentimes, I, who feel like I'm really good at reading people, will not even know that that kind of anger is going on. Because why? Well, because addicts are so good at hiding that. They're so good at hiding their true feelings. They are so good at hiding their real self. You know, I know I was asked um, a while back, um, I was asked if I believed that somebody could get sober if they held on to secrets. And the truth of the matter is, no, I believe those secrets will eat up an addict. And so... You know, anybody who's a certified sexual addiction therapist, they want to bring out the secrets. They want transparency, authenticity, and, you know, genuine sharing. And the only way a man can really care how he feels is by finding some safe people and being absolutely authentic and transparent. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, if you had to grade yourself on your honesty, what grade would you give yourself? And you can do pluses and minuses. That works okay. Um, 
but I do want you to think about that. And if it's a, if it's a B minus, then I'm going to say, hey, what would it take to make it a B? Well, maybe that person would need to be more honest with his wife. You know, we have a lot of addicts who feel so shame-based. They don't think they can ask for anything from their wives. They can't ask for physical contact. They can't ask for sex. They're, they know that they've traumatized their wife. Maybe their wife was even at some point said, hey, you know, I don't want you to push me. I don't want you to pressure me. Well, once uh, an addict is in good recovery, solid recovery, I'm not talking 90 days here. I'm talking a couple of years. They absolutely have the right to ask for what they need. Doesn't mean they get it. That's what I always tell people. You know, assertiveness is when you're clear and direct about how you feel, what you believe, and what you think. But it does not mean you get your way. Um, And as you well know, assertiveness lets everybody know where you stand. And that's what counts so much is that you're, you know, you're being true to yourself. And I have said more than once, when I was in a woman's group and we had identified who in the group did we trust the most, it absolutely, absolutely came up that the woman that was the most honest and direct was the woman who everybody trusted the most. Right? Okay. So that's important for you to know. Now, sometimes that can mean that you may be interpreted as being difficult. I know the women that I was in group with, there was some trepidation that they would be seen as uh, the B word. But I said, you know what? It does not matter. What matters is that you're honest. You know what you're doing. That's what matters. It matters that you share how you feel. You have that right. Okay? So, now I'm going to ask you, what have you been holding out on? What have you not been sharing? And what would make you feel better about your life? And why is it that you won't share? Is it that you fear the inevitable? That if you share how you feel, you'll get rejected? Possibly so. That's a real, you know, I have to say that's a real possibility. That doesn't matter because at least you ask. And if you're afraid that you're going to get rejected, you know what I would tell you to do? I would say call somebody before you go in for the big ask. That's my coaching principle, go in for the big ask. So call somebody and say, I'm scared, I'm afraid she's going to say no, or I'm afraid he's going to turn me down, or I'm afraid I'm going to get laughed at. And then go and do your ask. And then have it bookended by talking to somebody else afterwards. When you can process your true feelings, wow. That's when you've made connection, you've been honest, authentic, and transparent. Right? And that's what we're all searching for, and that's what we're striving for. Now, tonight, I am so excited. We're going to be talking about a term you might not have ever heard of. It's called ambiguous grief. And it's a term that can be applied to all types of griefs that don't necessarily have a hard definition. Um, and, and so, you know, we have a guest who actually has come up with this model about ambiguous grief, Dr. Sophia Caudell, who is 
in, in Durham, North Carolina, and Wilmington, North Carolina, did some research with another colleague. And they came up with this term, ambiguous grief, which is a different kind of grief than you may be familiar with. It is the feeling experienced from the loss of a loved one who is still living, accompanied by a change in or a death of the relationship. And doesn't that sound like sexual addiction and partner betrayal? I mean, you know, it's, I've had so many women say, I wish he would have died. It would have just been so much easier living with somebody I didn't even know. I'm, I'm grieving the loss of what I had, what I thought I had, what I wanted, what I hoped to have in the future. I don't know how I feel. I feel so ambiguous. So here we go. We're going to be talking about ambiguous grief. And so I'm super excited to be welcoming Dr. Sophia to the show. How are you? Hey, Carol. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is phenomenal stuff. I know Rob Weiss was talking to me about this at SASH. It's a special conference. I don't know if you've ever heard of SASH. Mm-hmm. And he had said, he had talked to me about this because he really believes that so oftentimes when we're working with sex addiction and partner betrayal and other forms of addiction, we pigeonhole people into a certain spot. And when I was really looking into your ambiguous grief process model, it's like you created the model to fit the gray, not the black and white. So I wondered if you would share a little bit about about how you got started with this research and, you know, what piqued your interest about ambiguous grief? Absolutely. Um, again, thanks for having me, Carol. This is, this is really exciting for me to be talking to you. And I love your show, by the way. Um, I just want to oh, say you. You, you, you really feature so many great topics and have so many great people on that I learned so much from and I know many of my clients do. And so this is, this is super, I'm excited to be talking with you. And I love talking about ambiguous grief and, and my journey. Um, really diving and studying into, into grief has really taken some interesting turns. And I've been learning so much so that I can help, help my clients better. But, yeah, let me explain a little bit how we got started. So for me as a clinician, I was just really bumping my head up against the fact that my, my client partners really kept repeating over and over to themselves, even after we were actually done doing EM, EMDR, done with somatic experiencing, so there was no actual trauma present anymore, their brains kept going back to the pathway of, oh, I'm in trauma, I'm in trauma, or I'm depressed. And I was really looking for another way of, moving through and helping people um, have a different framework and grief after looking at Pauline Boss's work on ambiguous loss, this really seemed to be the ticket and make sense. Um, it very clearly fits an addiction model and, and many other areas, but that's really how we got started with ambiguous grief. It, it fits the partner experience to a T. Um, again, just like you say, the addict looks the same, speaks the same, walks the same, but there's this whole new layer of person that was unknown. And, and there's so much loss and grief to be felt with that realization that ambiguous grief has really, um, it has helped so many people just the awareness of this has been such a empowerment for, for so many partner clients. Oh, I bet. And, and so can you share with us, what is your definition of ambiguous grief? So the way I think about it, I mean, the, the definition you read is our technical definition that is copyrighted. And since I, since we did that definition and I sort of went 
um, back into the field and was working with clients, doing lots of interviews. The way I think about it now is it's the loss of someone who is still living. However, it can also be the awareness of something that we never had. And so I don't know if we'll get that far into the conversation, but there can be ambiguous grief that we absolutely can identify and that's necessary to process um, in order for us to be able to move forward. Again, not even on a person that's not in our life anymore, a relationship loss, but it could be of a concept of something that I never had. For instance, well, what if I never had safety in my childhood? That is definitely something worthy of grief. Mm-hmm. 100%. And so it can be a perceived, um, it can be a perceived experience, or it can be an experience that one never had that they wish that they had had. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why is it important to be able to identify and understand ambiguous grief? I mean, I know the answer to that, but. What do you, how do you explain that to clients? Why is it important for them to be able to understand their own ambiguous grief? Sure, that's a really, really good question. So, if we're specifically talking about partners of sex addicts, again, um, the, the grief framework, I mean, even just when we say the word grief, that implies a moving through and that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And so that has been really, really important um, for, it seems, for clients to, to, to feel and, and be able to acknowledge for, as opposed to if they're given a depression diagnosis or a PTSD diagnosis, which oftentimes, you know, again, after the trauma is reprocessed, those diagnoses don't really apply. Um, there, there needs to, the, the work is not finished. I mean, underneath trauma is, is grief. And so it's really been helpful for clients to have this understanding and then do the work of grief reprocessing um, is, is just, it's really been, it's really been helpful. So it's, it's empowering because it implies that this is a process that they're actually going to move through. But at the same time, um, again, it provides that understanding of, oh, this is why I'm still upset. This is why even after we've done so much EMDR, I keep coming back to this because it's not that, it's not that I'm still in trauma. It's that there's this person that I thought was, that is is not who I thought he was or who she was, and and there's a there's a lot of grief, there's a lot of sadness to be felt about that. So it's really been just it's it's just another layer of work that's been really helpful. Well, and you talk about the five D's. Talk to our listening mm-hmm. audience about the five D's of ambiguous grief. I thought this was just amazingly clever as well as scientifically accurate. Yeah, this is, this is funny. And so I had fun with this. When I was doing a lot of this conceptual work and boy, it really took me a long time. Words with D's just kept popping up. Like for us in the field of sex addiction, obviously disclosure is a huge, huge piece of, of what we do with couples, but disclosure can obviously mean other things to other people in other situations. Disclosure could be, you know, someone finding um, a crack pipe and and whatever else in someone's belongings, or it could be, you know, a number of things. Disclosure of money being embezzled. I mean, it could be so, there's you know, so much that that word covers. And then divorce was another one that came up. Obviously, that could be separation or divorce could also just be the loss of any relationship. Um, diagnosis really covers just about everything else, um, mental illness, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, the list goes on and on for 
how this applies in those areas because people are still living, our loved ones are right near us, but they're very different and we have to begin to grieve who they used to be. And so that was really helpful to think of that D word. And um, then death of a relationship was just something that just kept popping up in our minds. We thought that it was really important to speak to some relationships are not changed they're actually gone and and finished and and people even though they're both still alive they just have no contact and that is incredibly traumatic for for a lot of people and then after i got back in the field on my own um this d word of of disappointment really just it just kept coming to my attention um because what I have found so far, and this is pretty uniform for most of, of, of the people I've interviewed, underneath ambiguous grief and even traditional grief where someone has passed, there's this other layer that's even deeper, which I'm calling original grief. And that, that is really, it could be a myriad of things of our earliest um, attachment wounds to disappointments of when a second child is born and let's say you're an older child and then another sibling comes along, that disappointment actually really turns into um, some pretty complicated um, work for an older child to deal with of that neglect that they might be feeling. So um, the five big Ds, um, yeah, that's the five big Ds. Well, absolutely. And so I want our listening audience to know that, again, they are divorce, diagnosis, disclosure, death of a relationship, and, of course, disappointment. And, you know, obviously we're talking about not just losing a sense of what we thought we had, but also with the five Ds here, I mean, with diagnosis, you may be losing something that you never thought you would lose. Obviously, if somebody gets Alzheimer's or dementia, um, you just never thought that your world would end up in that with that kind of a relationship. And, and so it's all about adjustment, isn't it? It is. And um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting. That's, that's like what you were saying before I came on of so many of our clients have said, boy, it would be easier if, you know, so-and-so had just died. And, and really, you know, I think that is because there's just never been a frame for thinking about this kind of loss and really giving it a name. And that gets back to why this is so critical and important for people to just be aware of is, you know, there's a name for this. It's not just plain old grief. Um, it, there's a specific, there's a specific type of grief that really deserves, it deserves its own name um, because it, it's just, it's so common and it is different than the grief that we experience when someone passes and hopefully we'll have time to get into that, but that's different because when someone passes, we do not hope that they're going to come back. We know they're not coming back, but when we lose a relationship or when someone has Alzheimer's, we spend a lot of time hoping and hoping actually I have found in my work um, is what keeps people stuck. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because for so many people that I work with, and of course I'm dealing with addiction and I'm dealing with partner betrayal, the partners say, the reason I'm still here is because I hope it will change. And although we understand that hope and we don't necessarily want to extinguish it, when there has been no reason to feel to, to see any change, and it's been months and years and years and years, it almost looks like they're in denial of what's really going on. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think, that's, I think that's accurate. Um, that's what it seems like um, to us. And um, I think that um, 
the way I the way I've really come to observe this, and and when I'm asking people and we're having conversations around this, it's you know to me it sounds like this is sort of the new way that the term codependency has evolved, um, which is whenever we are outside focused. Um, we're really not moving forward. We're going to be stuck because we're focused on other things than ourselves. And when we focus on ourselves, that's when we're, that's when we're doing some work and some progress is being made. That's actually what I've exactly found where hope is concerned. Um, Mm. It's not that we want to dash out hope and say hope is bad. Um, But I think, you know, many of us would agree it's, it's not sound thinking put hope in an addict when an addict has not been in recovery for many, many years. That's just not, that's not going to be helpful. Um, usually, even if someone's doing really well, um, the work of addiction is that they need to be focusing on themselves because that's, that's how they're going to you know get better and get in a true recovery. So I think for hope, the way that we work on it, um, in our practice and, and with the other therapists that I've shared this with is keep the hope alive, keep hoping, keep working, keep looking for everything that makes you feel good. So, you know, it's okay to grab onto those things, but the hope actually needs to be in ourselves. So it's like we're looking in a mirror and the hope is only in what we have control over. We have no control over what, the addict does or doesn't do. And so to put hope in anybody other than ourselves, it, it just doesn't make r- sound rational sense, um, at least from a therapeutic standpoint, um, in my opinion. Um, I really want to my, – my goal is to give people um, tangibles that are actually going to be effective. And so, so for that reason – Hope is great, but it's got to be on ourselves, and that's when we see people really making strides, and they're feeling better, and they're moving. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, tell me then, how do you work with people, uh, you know, when you're wanting to create that, oh, I would call it awareness and work for ambiguous grief? How do you how do you do that? Well, it probably starts out the same as any other office in this area of work. You know, we're going to really we're, we're definitely going to have to treat what's acute first. So trauma is going to have to be reprocessed. That has to happen before we can even begin to talk about um, ambiguous grief. I mean, we can certainly introduce the terms. But in my experience, um, partners, again, if we're still talking about partners, partners are not going to be too interested in going there because they just, they need to feel better and they're just kind of, you know, spinning out still. And so we treat the trauma and, and, and we're, we're just introducing the terms, not really focusing on it. And then when people kind of come down off the ledge, so to speak, and they're feeling more calm after some good old trauma work has happened, then they're really ready to keep going a little bit deeper. And we go, we go deeper still, and then we get into the work of ambiguous grief. And, and that is, it's, again, it's just a layer under the trauma work. And so we, we stay there for a while, and we still might do some EMDR around that. So um, that's been really helpful, I have found, is, EMDR for ambiguous grief. And then some other things that we might do are just um, some of the more traditional grief therapies of some specific writing prompts. Um, Certainly talking about it in our partners groups is helpful. Um, Being able to, to speak the words and awareness about ambiguous grief. Again, the more that partners do that, they're actually making a conscious choice to not choose depression or trauma again. And so there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's some of the resourcing work that we do with ambiguous grief is, is build in that empowerment. And so they're choosing to keep moving and they're choosing, they're choosing to, to, 
to, to name ambiguous grief is what they're moving through. Um, and, and just that in itself, again, is very empowering. Yeah, I, I was thinking, can you share an exercise that you might do with somebody? Now, I know you mentioned EMDR, and that's a wonderful technique. But an exercise that you might do with somebody to um, oh, help them with one of the big Ds. Maybe even disappointment, since that has to do with early childhood wounding. So, um, yeah. So the the disappointment piece, I actually see. Well, I do see that a lot with partners, but my focus with the disappointment right now, um, preliminarily, because that's newer, has been with addicts. And so I, mm-hmm. I might switch and talk talk about addicts for a minute. But this could totally still apply to partners. Um, because uh, that's just sort of how they found their way in their current situation is because of the early attachment wounding anyway. Um, but with addicts, um, that is, that's, some, that's really some deeper work, I have to say. That's after people have got some pretty decent recovery under their belt. We've definitely done the um, top layer of trauma. We've, we've worked through... Um, a lot of ambiguous grief actually. And so disappointment is really one of the, the last pieces that we get to. And for addicts that turns right into original grief. And that is, um, that is really, that's like, again, that's like that deeper third layer underneath the trauma and, and ambiguous grief that is the very, very early, attachment wounding. And so that could be EMDR or somatic experiencing is, is pretty great with that because it's, it's when we are so little um, that this kind of wounding is, is being felt. Um, and so those are great. But then also having some good discussions, imagery is very helpful. And um, even people can do this on their own if someone is practicing meditation and they want to, they want to really meditate on some of this original wounding, that can actually be very helpful just to allow that to be felt um, in that safe, in that safe manner. That's, that's really helpful. But then again, um, getting some good um, letter writing, done about that original grief, especially if it's to a parent or a caregiver or to an abuser. Um, writing is always helpful for grief. Um, experiential writing, where we write something and then we might actually burn it. We do that a lot with ambiguous grief. Or I have this little urn and we, we do some writing and then we put it in the urn and we go bury it. Um, so a lot of things like that are really, really helpful to for people to really feel like this grief has had a hold of them for a long time, but now they are, they are consciously, they're really, they're really putting it behind them in in very active ways that are experiential. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I find that when, when you're doing something metaphoric, like burning something and putting it in an urn or burying it or flushing it down the toilet, there's something really symbolic that I believe allows kind of the surrender process to occur. And let's face it, when we're talking about grief, we're also talking about letting go. Um, mm-hmm. So with ambiguous grief, do you experience those same five stages of loss that, you know, uh, Kubler Ross would, uh, I'm blocking on that uh, study. What was that study? The, yeah. Well, the um, I, I'm not really even sure that um, there's – I think that – I've always been told that that wasn't actually research as much as it, it was her observation when she was working in a hospital with people who were dying. And so I'm not sure that we have a lot out there for people who are mourning the loss of a loved one. I think that's just something – that we've sort of taken up and assumed is, is correct. And, and the answer would be no. And so, um, no, I, I don't really, if people go through those stages, that's great. And I honor that and that's totally fine. 
but that does not at all need to happen. Um, it's, it, this is actually a pretty quick way to conceptualize and process. Again, my experience with this, with hundreds of clients at this point, is this is more of a liberation to provide this definition for people is, is a true liberation. It, it's, it's something that they, they're, I mean, it's like the wow on people's faces when we learn about this in session. Um, they're so grateful to have this model and this, this awareness. It's so very different than, again, the diagnosis of depression or PTSD. So, so they may not move through those stages. Um, they just may be incredibly sad until we do some specific work, and then they're then they're they're moving through. Well, that makes a lot of sense too. I get that totally. Um, all right. So now you did all this research. You you conceptualized the big D's. Obviously, you came up with the model of ambiguous grief. What are your what's the current research show, and what are your future plans? Well, that's a great question. Thank you. I need I need to have um, some some more time in my schedule so that I can sit down and and write a book or two. So. Um, I'd really love to write something about this grief journey of research that I've, that I've been on because what had started out as a very simple, ambiguous grief project has, has really grown into expanding ambiguous grief and moving into original grief. And so right now I'm focusing on original grief, and that's pretty exciting. Um, I'm finding that the majority of addicts and partners, if we're talking about that, um, or the majority of people who have most any mental health diagnosis, um, once we get through the other layers of whatever it is they need to work with, ambiguous, uh, original grief is definitely showing up. Um, so that's pretty, that's pretty important, um, I think. And, and again, that has been... Um, incredibly empowering for people because for so many people there's been that layer that they had no idea what it was and it's somehow just even knowing that there might be something more serious and deeper to get to that it's like we don't know how to get there and so we don't even know what we're looking for but when we start following the traces and the path of grief Somehow we get down to original grief, and that's been really, really helpful. So that's what I'm focusing on right now. But I definitely am going to write at least one book about this and keep doing some research. Um, this is also really helpful work to work with couples um, who have had addiction in their relationship, and they are moving through um, like what Ken Adams calls the threshold of vulnerability. This is that grief work. Um, of being able to put that old relationship away and create a new trust, a new relationship. So there's a lot of there's a lot of very cool things that I'd like to get into. Absolutely. And so you're a CSAC, correct? A certified sexual addiction therapist. Yes, and supervisor. And supervisor. And so obviously. You, you've mentioned a couple of people. I mean, Ken Adams is amazing, and he has a lot of theory that really works well with couples. And then Rob Weiss, who endorsed your work. Um, tell me, do you see prodependence as fitting into any of the work you're doing, any of the models? Um, that's a good question. I have not thought about prodependence um, specifically with ambiguous grief, but I would have to say that it, it and I, I love Rob Weiss to death. I was on his dissertation committee and I, I respect his work very much. I love prodependence. Um, I think there's enough room for prodependence and codependence to, to all be together. There's not one right way, but I think mm -hmm. for you know, specifically the ambiguous grief process model, and we also have a cycle of hope that I created, um, pro-dependence would actually very likely keep a partner 
stuck in trauma and depression um, because the, the focus would be outward on the addicted loved one instead of turned right back around onto him or herself. And so for this work, it may not, they may not marry together nicely, but there are plenty of people um, out there that the prodependence model is, is the right thing for them. And that's great. They should definitely do that. Well, got it. So now you've got a lot of exciting things going on and you, you can just hear that your brain just keeps on cooking. Um, what would you tell sex addicts that are listening to this show about ambiguous grief that you haven't already mentioned? And then what would you tell partners? And last but not least, what would you tell clinicians? Oh, really good question. Um, first, to um, any, any people out there working in recovery of any kind, I would say um, go to your sponsor if you're in a 12-step program and or go to your therapist and start, you know, maybe go to my website, go to our Ambiguous Grief website, do a little background work together and, and really dig deep and, and go through the layers to get to your original grief because, wow, is that going to be so incredibly powerful. It has, it has been so lovely and wonderful to witness my clients who, who are in recovery um, to really get to their their deepest layer of original grief, that is the aha. And what's so great if people are in 12-step, is 12-step is, is, is so wonderfully amazing. They've been talking about grief for a long time. Um, they just don't call it ambiguous grief, and they also um, sort of get at it a little bit more of a complicated way. The, the work of grief in 12-step is like after we've got recovery for like a long time. And um, I think we can actually get there quicker. So just by and we we and we do the grief work over and over and over again. It's not a one time one shot deal. So that's what I would say to to recovering addicts. I would say that exact same thing to partners. Number one, but then I'd also really encourage partners to you know really just take in this awareness of ambiguous grief and and see if it fits for them when they are considering their relationship and, and really looking at, at their partner and seeing if the work is working. And, you know, when they're really checking in about all of those, those things that partners think about and worry about when they're, when they're trying to figure out what to do to see if an ambiguous grief model may fit because there's that light at the end of the tunnel just being in the grief process is it's just so much more again it's much more empowering because you know we're not stuck we're moving we're you move through grief you don't stay stuck in grief and so i would just encourage people to see if it fits for them and for um my fellow colleagues i would say um go to my website i also have a podcast called um Sex and the Bull City because my um, my practice is called Bull City Psychotherapy and so the podcast is just sort of a play on um, one of my favorite shows, Sex in the City. <laughs> and so um, anyway, so that's kind of helpful. There's a little bit on ambiguous grief on my website, on these other websites, on Facebook, Instagram, all of those things um, where I do a lot of postings, but also just um, giving me a call. I'm happy to chat with people about this until I get a workbook or a book written. Um, I'd love to present sometime at ITAP if that can ever happen. Um, but I'm, I'm available um, to chat or consult. I do a lot of consulting. I also do a free meeting on um, the website In the Room. It's a, a free global recovery um, website. It's a fabulous resource every Thursday at noon Eastern time, I do a free meeting on In the Rooms. It's called Codependency, Grief, and Relationships. And so we get into all of this. And coming soon, I'm going to be doing um, 
probably Zoom meetings, very likely, for ambiguous grief. So there will be um, workshops and, and support groups that I'll be offering very soon. That'll be posted. It'll be available on my website. So lots of things are coming. Well, absolutely. And once again, her website is www.bullcity, and that is B-U-L-L, city, psychotherapy.com. And you can reach Dr. Sophia Cottle at Sophia at BullCityPsychotherapy.com. And, you know, obviously your um, practice utilizes a really integrative approach to treatment, and you specialize in sex and love addiction, attachment, and intimacy disorders. And unfortunately, that fits most of our clients, whether they be partners or addicts. So I know you're doing some really good work there. Um, I can't thank you enough for sharing Ambiguous Grief, and I would encourage everybody to go to the website so that you can take a look at the the model a little bit closer. And I know this has to speak to our listening audience. If they're clinicians, they may never have heard of the model. And if they're addicts and partners, it helps to explain why their grief is not something that they can necessarily share with everybody because it's not a loss that is absolutely here and then gone. It's a loss of they didn't know they had it. They didn't think that they were a part of it. They want something different. And their whole reality has morphed into not really being able to depend on their reality and their senses to know what they're experiencing. And so this ambiguous grief really puts a label and a name to it and helps people then to deal with it. So, Dr. Sophia, thank you so much. Thanks, Carol. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And, again, thanks so much for all that you do. Oh, you're welcome. And any time, when you get a new project, you send me an email. Thanks. I'll do it. Absolutely. All right. Make it a good week. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So Dr. Sophia Caudill is an expert in ambiguous grief. And, you know, it is a new model. And she sounds like she's working on a book so that she can really um, help you to deal with how to mourn in maybe a different way than you would mourn a loss. And uh, I think that's really exciting because we know when our clients feel that's the next closest step to being healed. All right. So I am so happy to be with you tonight, and I want you to look at her website. Again, that's www.bullcitypsychotherapy.com. Take a look at my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And thank you to everybody who's been buying my online course. I've got to tell you, I am on steroids when it comes to my partner course. I hope to have it finished in the next couple of weeks. And that's on post-traumatic growth. That is on, you know, what happens when the partner is really in the process of healing And how does she acknowledge it? How does he acknowledge it? And, you know, because let's face it, addicts can be men and women. Partners can be men and women. We can have same-sex partnerships. I mean, this applies to everybody. So I just really appreciate it when you go and purchase that online course because it's kind of like you're getting a dose of me any time, day or night that you need it because you can always go back to the course. It's yours forever. All right, as I always say, there will only be one of you at all times, and I want you to fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll see you next week, our Christmas week, right? We'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol, the coach.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.